sermonette, what I'm going to call it, which I, I was taught from a very young age meant short sermon, with, which no pastors ever actually followed through. But we'll see what happens. I, I think we got a shorter one than normal. So over the past several Sundays, including this morning, we've lit these Advent candles. I've, I've said it over and over again. If you don't know them by now, we have a problem. But the first purple candle, of course, was the prophet's candle, which represented the hope of the Messiah. This, the pink candle was Mary's candle. For us, it was Mary's candle, which uh, represented the love of the Messiah. The second purple candle was the angel's candle, which represented the peace of the Messiah. And the third purple candle was the shepherd's candle, that represents the joy that we have in the Messiah. And tonight, we're going to light the Christ candle, which is a little white. So, Cameron, come on up here. Let's put it up. Um, no, this, this side. Okay. You can think you can do it on your own? All right, do it on your own. you got to hold the two buttons. What now? No, it's going to... What do you... No, it's a hold. Okay, well, you got to push that button down and push the other button at the same time. Got it? How about I start it for you? Ready? you got to hold chapter 1, verse 34. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the Luke chapter 1 and 2. And I don't necessarily have a specific text. It's just going to be all of what we talked about tonight and everything I preached about. We're going to kind of do a summarization of it all and look at it from a slightly different perspective. And like I said, it should be pretty short. So the verse that I'm kind of jumping from here is first, or not first, is Luke chapter 1, verse 34. In this verse, the angel Gabriel told Mary, upon her question as to how she was going to become pregnant despite the fact that she was a virgin, the angel said, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now these are some very powerful words. Even coming from an angel, they're a very powerful word. I mean, like honestly, you think about it for a second. What is the significance of, of the angel telling this to Mary, or for that matter, any one of us repeating it? I mean, it's, it's a very powerful thing to say that nothing is impossible with God. This evening, as we review the Christmas story according to Luke, I want to point out five different things that show God's authority and how nothing is impossible for God. Five different things. First of all, God has authority over the governments of the world. Look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. God has authority over the governments of the world. And it tells us there that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to have a census. Now, while Caesar Augustus might have thought that he was in control when he... And we all know that that was not the case. We know that God was in control. And it was God who ordained this census at the perfect timing. Because if the census didn't happen at the timing it did, Mary would not have been Bethlehem at the timing, of the timing that she was. The prophet Micah's prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 would not have been fulfilled. Everything was in God's perfect timing. God, the God of heaven... Yahweh, the Lord, is in complete control. The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, no matter what. Caesar might not have realized this, but in the end of it, that's what was going to happen. God was in control. Romans chapter 30, or 13, verse 1. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Every person is to be in subjunction, subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. 
Now, I don't know about you, but for the past year and a half or so, there has been some political turmoil in our country. We, some of you might be excited, some might not be, and the rest of us are probably just scared. And, and, and I think my point here is that God is in charge. God is the one who ordained every one of the political leaders, no matter high or how high or low they are. And it is God who's in control. He put them there. And He can take them away. It's in His hands. Because He is, has authority over the governments of the world. Number two, God has authority over nature. Look at, uh, just again, in, um, just in the text, as we also saw earlier in, in verse uh, chapter 1, Mary was impregnated, even though she hadn't had sex. Let's just say, I would say that's one of the greatest examples of how God is in control of nature. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And then verse 17 here is really the key. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You know, you look at the world and the sky and the stars and all that kind of stuff, the trees, and you recognize that God ordained it all. God put it all together. It was God who made it. God's in control of it. He holds it all together. And then you think about Jesus and all the things Jesus did, the healing of the sick, and, and especially when it came to so He's in control of nature as in our physical bodies, but He's also control, in control of literal nature. You think about how Jesus was walking on, on water. He, can, he had control over the, the ability to walk on the water. But then I think about the storm in, in, when the disciples were out in the middle of the, the Sea of Galilee and a storm arises, yet Jesus is able to stop it all because He is in control of nature. So when you're driving to work this winter, or you know, you're afraid of the, the winter snow, or when you're just afraid of a big storm coming in, Remember who's in charge of that storm. Remember who's in charge of nature. And you know, you might even be facing bodily different issues, diseases, whatever that may be. Remember who's in charge. Remember who's in charge of it all. Because God is in control of nature. Number three, God has authority over humanity. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 7. That, there, that innkeeper, I'm telling you, I want to write a book about the innkeeper because I have some very, I have some very serious things I want to say about this guy. I mean, the innkeeper could have given up his room, yet God, of course, chose that he wasn't supposed to. God was in control of the innkeeper, even if the innkeeper didn't realize this. Like I've said this before a couple of times, you know, there was one room in that inn, and it was that innkeeper's room, yet he chose not to give it up to the pregnant woman. And so that says a lot about this individual. And really the question that comes from that to me is like, who, who amongst us has room in their hearts for Jesus? And I hope every one of us does. God is in control of those people who frustrate you. God is in control of those co-workers that irritate you. And even those drivers on the street that are driving just a little bit too slow. So God is in control. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. And then Romans 8, 38, 39. One of my favorite passages Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God if you put your full trust in Him. Then Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, of course, Jeremiah was writing to the people of Israel. 
God had a plan for the people of Israel. A perfect plan that was going to eventually bring them out of bondage and slavery. God also has a plan for each and every one of us, no matter what we have going on, no matter what stresses we go through in our lives. We have a God who loves us greatly and has a plan for us. He's not going to just let us go because He has authority over humanity. Now, number four, God also has authority over the heavenly host. Look again at Luke chapter 2, and you notice how the angels were ordained by God. God sent them to announce the birth of Christ to the shepherds. And of course they cry out, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. God has authority over the heavenly hosts, even the ones who betrayed Him. God has authority over Lucifer, the devil, and has authority over all the demons of this world. And you know what? God has already beaten them. Revelation 21, verse 1 to 4. John, the disciple, writes, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the, old, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The, the first things have passed away. God is in control of all heavenly beings, and that even includes the bad ones. So we have no reason to be afraid of those people. So God is in control. God has authority over the governments of this world. He has authority over nature. He has authority over humanity. He has authority over the heavenly host. And then finally, God has authority over salvation. The most important of it all. Look at verse 11, Luke chapter 2. In this verse, verse 11, the angel tells the shepherds about the good news that will bring great joy to all the people throughout the earth. He tells them, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, the Savior of all the earth, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, in God incarnate, came to save the world. There is no other point of Him, of God, coming to this earth than to save all of mankind. And, and you know, there's some theological beliefs that say God only came to save some, or His salvation is only good for some. I don't believe that. I believe very firmly that God's salvation is good for all if we choose to embrace it. I mean, what began so peacefully in a manger 33 years later would end with Jesus being nailed to the cross. Not because He deserved to die such a horrible death, because He took the sins of mankind upon His shoulders, making the ultimate atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it was that sacrifice that set us free from the bondage of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23 begins, For the wages of sin is death. Meaning every last one of us, no matter how good we are, are condemned by our sins. We are condemned by the sins of our, of our hearts. And we're condemned to go to hell. But the beauty is that verse doesn't end there. Romans 6, 23 in its, in its entirety says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then one of my absolute favorite verses in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This means that Jesus died on the cross, not before we stopped sinning. Like We didn't have to stop sinning in order for Him to give us atoning sacrifice for our sins. We didn't have to 
We didn't have to do anything to, to have this take place. It was in the midst of our sinful condition, in the midst of our sinful behaviors, that Jesus died for our sins. He went to the cross willingly, knowing what we are and what we've done and the sins we've committed, because that's how much He loves us. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus said, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. This means that if you believe inwardly, really in your head, of course, we don't, we don't believe with our heart, we believe with our head. And if you believe in your head that Jesus died on the cross to make atonement for your sins, meaning He died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, and then rose from the grave so you can go to heaven when you die. Meaning, he went to heaven, tore down the gates, and said, you can come on in. You know, there's nothing separating us from God anymore because Jesus paid the penalty. If you believe that in your heart, you can then confess it with your mouth. Meaning, put Christ on display through your words and your actions. I'll say it over and over and over again. Who amongst your neighbors, your friends, your family members knows you're a Christian without you even having to open your mouth and preach at them? And that's really the goal. Imagine if we're able to go and everyone just takes one look at us and says, they're clearly walking with Jesus. Because who we are and everything about us puts Him on display. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus tells us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus is banging on the door today. All He wants you to do is open that door. And you know what? You might say, you know, I, I've done that already. And that's great. I'm glad you have. But how about those you love? How about your family members, your friends, your neighbors, and the employees? All the people you can possibly name. Everybody. How about them? Because if they didn't, they're not in a very good spot right now. They're, they're literally living a life separated from God, and they're risking their lives in a possible eternity in hell. And this Christmas season, there's no greater message that we can give Christmas has absolutely nothing to do with trees or lights or Santa and everything to do with Jesus. I mean, there is no Christmas if there was no Jesus. That's how simple it is. We have hope in Christ because He freed us from our sins on the cross and rose from the grave so we can go to heaven when we die. We are loved by Christ because He made the sacrifice. He, he made this sacrifice out of love for all humanity. Not out of obligation. He didn't have to die for us. He did so because He loved us that much. We could have peace in our lives through Jesus if we only allow Him to take over and give us rest. And then finally, we can have joy. We will have joy in our lives because there is no greater thing to celebrate this Christmas season than our salvation in Jesus. That's the bottom line. That's it. There's no other reason. No other reason to celebrate Christmas if it wasn't for Jesus. Let me go ahead and close us in prayer, and then we'll sing Silent Night. Dear Father in Heaven, I thank You and I praise You for all that You've done. Bless us now as we prepare to depart. Allow us to truly comprehend the meaning of this Christmas season, the reason for the season, Lord, and that being You. You sent Jesus into this world, bringing Christmas here, the first, ad, first advent of You, the first coming of You to this earth, Lord. And that first coming was so essential. That first coming was so important because it was at that time that you, being God, came to earth, dwelt among humanity, dwelt among creation, and then died for creation. Died for humanity. Not because we earned it, but because you love us. I thank you. I praise you in your wonderful name.